We have an epidemic of diabetes in the United States. More than 50% of the people have diabetes or prediabetes. That's the bad news. The good news, there's a cure. And by cure, I mean an absolute, profound, authentic cure. And even better, it's less expensive than free. <laughs> Hi, Ola. And helping you take control of your health. And today I'm joined by one of my favorites, Dr. Jason Fung, who we've previously interviewed before for one of his previous books. And he has a new book out. It's out in January and it's called The Diabetic Code. And he's a nephrologist up at the in Toronto. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Fung. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Good to see you, Joe. All right. So it's been uh, a great book. I've, I'm an enormous admirer of your work and strongly recommend and encourage people to get the book that previous books you wrote, which is The Complete Guide to Fasting. Magnificent tool. I think everyone should own that. And uh, since I wrote and you actually helped me edit my uh, book, uh, Fat for Fuel, which which, uh, you know, integrated a lot of your work in there. Let's talk about this before, you know, the, we'll, we'll certainly reveal what the cure for diabetes is, but before we discuss the cure, let's talk about the incidence. And I said in the opening that it's at 50%, but I mean, that's the, can, can, when you factor in diabetes and prediabetes, but we, um, there's this, this interesting work that refers to insulin, elevated insulin levels in the blood that may be even more foundational to the actual metabolic disturbance that's causing the problem and resulting in the symptom of diabetes. And it may suggest that that incidence is closer to 80%. If you look at insulin resistance as the core. So, and Dr. Joseph Kraft, is a physician by now, um, a, a test to measure that, which is uh, similar to oral glucose tolerance, where you administer a 75 or 100 gram load of glucose and then measure insulin over the and glucose over a, a few hours and see what those responses are. And it shows a, a lot of the people who don't have diabetes on that test by glucose standards do have it by measuring insulin. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a scary statistic for sure. So I, I think that work is, um, you know, really fundamental to trying to change the way we look at diabetes. And by diabetes, we're really talking about type 2 diabetes. So there's two types, type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is the one we think about it classically in children, although it's happening more in adults now. Uh, type 2 really accounts for 90 to 95% of overall diabetes. So to be clear, we're talking about in this uh, podcast type 2 diabetes, not so much for type 1 diabetes. But absolutely, it's been uh, a huge epidemic, and the epidemic really started just around 1980, if you look at the prevalence uh, data. Back then, obesity wasn't a problem. As obesity becomes more and more of a problem, about 10 years later, uh, type 2 diabetes follows along with it. But the sort of fundamental underlying problem of type 2 diabetes, which is the insulin resistance, is actually much more widespread than that. And what the innovative thing that Dr. Kraft did was that he took a standard sort of oral glucose tolerance test, and he measured instead of the blood glucose, the, the blood insulin, insulin levels. Because if you think about what's happening, the, uh, the, when you ingest a certain amount of the 75 grams of glucose, um, your blood glucose may stay normal, 
but your body may be producing a huge amount of insulin to really shove that glucose into the cell because that's one of the functions of insulin is to move the glucose from the blood into the cell. Insulin resistance refers to the fact that 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 blood glucose is simply not getting in there. So if your body needs to produce, you know, two, three, four, five times the amount of normal insulin to get that glucose in there, you have a problem, which is not detectable uh, if you just measure the blood glucose, because yes, you are shoving all that glucose into the cell, but it took you a huge amount of effort to do so. And by measuring this sort of craft assay, which is the looking at how much the insulin goes up, you can detect it at a much earlier state, which is important because, as, as you mentioned, there are things that we can do about reversing this type 2 diabetes, about reversing the fundamental problem of the insulin resistance. And if the sooner we get to it, you know, the sooner we can get people uh, sort of on the path to, to wellness. Absolutely, because diabetes is just one symptom. We've got cancer, we have heart disease, we have Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative diseases. So ultimately, at the core of this is this insulin resistance resulting in mitochondrial dysfunction because your body's unable to burn fat as a primary fuel, relying on sugar, which generates more reactive oxygen species and damages the mitochondria. So that's the, the summary, but fortunately, there's a simple solution that you're an expert in. It's just <laughs> it's simple, it's inexpensive, it's magnificent, it's just revolutionary. Uh, and sorry, to, <laughs> the solution is it's uh, fasting, and it's been used for thousands and thousands of years to keep us sort of well. And what's incredible about it really is that we have to sort of understand what insulin resistance actually is and what type 2 diabetes really is. And then you'll understand why something so simple like not eating for specific periods of time can be so, such a powerful reducer. So just to back up to a point saying that it's not just diabetes and not just obesity, but it's really everything that we face in medicine these days. It's the heart disease, the cancer, and they all fall into this category of metabolic disease. And there is something called the metabolic syndrome, which includes uh, abdominal obesity. So it's not body weight, but it's actually waist circumference. Uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, low HDL, which is your good cholesterol, uh, high triglycerides, um, and uh, elevated blood sugars. But that puts you at high risk of the Alzheimer's disease, of the cancer, of the heart disease, and so on. And what's interesting is that this whole, um, this whole uh, you know, practice of medicine has really gone a paradigm shift in the last 20, 30 years, and most doctors probably haven't even recognized that because in the sort of uh, 20th century, we had a lot of infectious diseases. You look at the big killers, you know, before antibiotics, people are dying of tuberculosis, they're dying of, um, you know, uh, diarrheal illnesses, they're dying of pneumonia and all that sort of thing. And the paradigm of treatment is basically, you see the doctor, I give you a medicine, an antibiotic, you get better. Um, so now we go to the 21st century, and these are not such big problems. So we've got great antibiotics, we've got treatments for HIV, we've got treatments for hepatitis C, viruses, bacteria, all those are fine, 
but we're still dying of things like heart disease, cancer. Those, those problems are getting worse. Diabetes is getting worse. Obesity is getting worse. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to apply that same sort of paradigm that is, you come to me as a doctor, I give you a pill, you get better to these metabolic diseases. And you can't do that because these are dietary lifestyle diseases. They need to use, you have to use these metabolic treatments, which is why your book, you know, using fat for fuel is so important because it really gets to the point that you can't follow this old paradigm because you're going to fail at treating the Alzheimer's, the cancer, the heart disease, and so on. And the type 2 diabetes, the insulin resistance, remember I said that the, uh, the glucose goes into the cell and insulin resistance is when the glucose doesn't go out of the cell. So for, for many, many years, we use this sort of paradigm of uh, lock and key. That is, the cell is sort of gated off. And outside the cell, there's blood. And when insulin comes around, it turns the uh, key, opens the gate, glucose goes in. So when we said, okay, well, insulin's there. So why is the glucose not going in? And you can measure the insulin. The insulin levels are high. You can look at the insulin receptor. The gate is completely normal. So we said something like, well, you know, maybe there's like something gumming up the mechanism, like a piece of gum. It's stuck in the lock so it doesn't open properly. And therefore, the glucose can't get into the cell. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge problem with this sort of uh, paradigm because if that is happening, what the cell inside has no glucose, so it should be starving. So you should be lo losing lots of weight. You should have a very thin liver. All your fat should just melt away because if you think about type 1 diabetes, so untreated type 1 diabetes where you don't have enough insulin, that's exactly what happened. The cell actually literally starves and everything just wastes away. You see these children who are weighing like 25 pounds sort of thing because they've lost all of their uh, energy and they can't use it because they have no glucose. But that's not what's happening here. In type 2 diabetes, you see that people are generally obese. They have large abdomens, often a big beer belly that, or a wheat belly, sometimes they say. So this is not the case at all. So what's happening instead is that it's actually an overflow syndrome. So the cell can't accept any more glucose because it's kind of jam-packed full of glucose already. And that's the reason you have this insulin resistance because insulin is trying to move this glucose into the cell, but the cell is full. So think about your suitcase, a suitcase. You, you put the clothes into the suitcase. At first, everything goes in fine, but once it fills up to a certain point, you just can't put in those last two t-shirts. There's nothing wrong with your, your suitcase. There's nothing wrong with the T-shirts. It's just that the whole thing is full. You can't put it in. And that's the same thing. So it's really an overflow mechanism. And if you think about type 2 diabetes, that's exactly what's happening. The sugar can't go in. The glucose can't go in because everything's full. And that's why your liver is full. It's a big fatty liver. The liver is busy trying to get rid of all this glucose by turning it into new fat. So you have the obesity and so on. So type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance are the same uh, sort of thing. It's really about too much sugar. That's the bottom line. And if you yeah. understand that the whole problem is too much sugar, then the solution is not to use more insulin to kind of jam more glucose into an already full cell. The key is to get rid of it all. So what you want yeah. to do is you want to do one of two things. One, don't put more sugar into their system because you have too much sugar in already. And two, burn it off. 
So what we do is, if you don't want to avoid putting sugar into your system, use a low-carbohydrate diet, high-fat diet. And two, if you're going to try and burn it off, then you should use intermittent fasting. So everybody worries about this, but... Theo, that's interesting because many people, when I was a while ago, would have thought, well, you should... Good exercise. Marvel that exercise solution because that's only in the muscles and insulin resistance is not just in the muscles, it's in your tissues and your organs. So it's the fasting that burns it off, not the exercise. Not that you shouldn't exercise, but don't get confused here. Absolutely. And that's that's a very important point because your muscles will, you know, you'll burn the energy, the glycogen in your muscles, but you're not doing anything about the liver. You're not exercising your liver when you're running and swimming and whatever. So absolutely you should run. That's good for your muscles. It's good for your joints. It's good for your tissues. But you can't exercise your liver. And that's the whole problem. You filled up the liver with so much glucose that you really can't get rid of it all. Sure, if you exercise 10 hours a day, maybe you can do it. But it's a very, very inefficient way to do it. And, you know, just letting your body simply burn off that excess sugar is far more effective. And when you think about it uh, kind of logically, it sort of uh, makes sense. For example, if you have a car and you fill up the gas tank and it's full, but you still have to fill up more, so you're forced to pump it into the back seat. Well, what are you going to do? What you're not going to do is go back to the gas station three times a day to pump in more gas into your back seat. You have no room to put it all. So your body is the same. You have no room to put all this sugar in, so don't put it in and let your body run it off because what you do with your car, of course, is keep driving it around until it all burns off and that's exactly what the fasting does. So it gets rid of all the sort of excess nutrients and that's why in, in old days, uh, you know, people called it a cleanse or a detox because that's really what it was. Assuming that you had adequate fat stores, which in, you know, in ancient times was not always a given, but certainly in modern times it's a given. Assuming you have adequate fat stores, then getting rid of all this kind of sugar in your body that's making you sick every so often is incredibly powerful and really gets to the heart of the, uh, of, of the problem, which is that excess sugar in the body. And we've used it now for many years, and we see the most incredible stories sometimes. We have people coming in with the most severe diabetes. They're taking hundreds of units of insulin a day, and you know, within three, four weeks, we'll have them off everything. Within like two months, we'll have them essentially non-diabetic. Their sugars have completely normalized. Is it hard work? Yeah, absolutely. It's a hard work to fast and to, you know, limit yourself. Who doesn't want to go out and eat some donuts and so on? Uh, you know, that's that, but that's not the point. The point is that you can get better by it. It's hard work, but it's natural. It's letting okay. your body heal itself. Yeah, but before we dive deeper into fasting, which we definitely want to do, I just want to backtrack a little bit and talk about the insulin. Uh, about 50% of the diabetics uh, in the the country are on five or ten percent of the diabetics are type one that actually require it. So there's a, almost the majority of diabetics are being given insulin, and to me that, in my view, that's reprehensible malpractice because it just it just really reflects complete ignorance and misunderstanding of the fundamental pathology that's occurring in type two diabetes. And I'm wondering if you just comment on that a little bit, and then we can go dip back into the fasting. Well, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right. The funny part, I think, is that the patients themselves know that they're going down the wrong path. 
because what happens when you give insulin is that insulin lets your body use all that glucose. So if there's too much glucose, it's just going to make fat. So all these patients gain weight. And they always come back and they say, whoa, doc, uh, you know, you've always told me I need to lose weight. Then you give me insulin, I've gained 20 pounds. How is that any good? And the answer is that it's not. As you gain more weight, your diabetes gets worse, which means you need to take more insulin, which means you're going to gain more weight. And they can see themselves spiraling down the drain. And the doctors do nothing but give them more insulin. It doesn't even make any sense, as you said, because the underlying issue is the hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. That is, if you look at type 2 diabetes, insulin levels are very high. So how is giving more insulin in a situation where you have too much insulin, how does that even make any sense? If you have hyperthyroidism, if you have too much thyroid hormone, you don't give more thyroid hormone. If you have an alcoholic, you don't go and give him more alcohol. It's the exact wrong thing to do. In fact, if your levels of insulin are too high and that's your disease, you need to lower insulin. By giving insulin, you're actually making the fundamental problem much worse. And what's happened, of course, is that doctors give insulin, and for years we did this, to drive the glucose inside the cell. So what, what happened is that you can't see that blood glucose anymore. So then you could pretend that things were better, but they weren't. They were getting worse all the time. And you know that because you're giving higher and higher doses of insulin as they go. So it's the same as taking your garbage and instead of throwing it out, just putting it under your bed. You can pretend everything's fine, but it's not. And that was the, the entire problem. So I completely agree with you. It's, 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 just, it's just terrible medicine to be giving. And logically, it makes no sense at all because it's... Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an incredible uh, aspersion on the whole practice of conventional medicine when one of the most common metabolic diseases, one that affects nearly 50% of the people in Western civilization is treated massively and fundamentally incorrectly. If they don't understand something so fundamentally basic, what are they going to do for these more obscure diseases? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. It doesn't make sense. I mean, why would you trust them? It gets worse than that get because what happens, of course, is that you get um, places like the you know, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, then saying, well, type 2 diabetes is chronic and progressive. And it's like we know for a fact that is not true. It's, in fact, terrifically easy to prove because we have data from, for example, bariatric surgery where you can take a severe diabetic and within sort of a couple of weeks of bariatric surgery, the diabetes will go away. I'm not a huge fan of bariatric surgery, but the point was that the diabetes was never permanent. They just didn't treat it the right way. And what's happened, of course, is that um, because the diabetes kept getting worse, so we as doctors had been giving advice to give insulin to people who had too much insulin already. Uh, it made the people gain weight even though they were obese already. So things were getting worse. But instead of saying, wow, I think things are, I, I think my treatment is not correct, we said, well, you know, we threw up our hands and said, that's just the way the disease is. And it's like, it was never chronic, it was never progressive, but we gave people that message. And what happens, of course, it gives them a sense of learned helplessness. They learn, patients learn, that they shouldn't even try to get better, which is even more reprehensible. We should have said, as, 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 a, as a community, we should have said, what is going on? 
why are things getting worse? What's wrong with our treatment? Because clearly we're doing something wrong. Instead, we try to turn around and blame sort of mother nature. This is the way it is as you get older. You get type 2 diabetes. It's like, okay, but that's not true. Because a generation ago, in 1950, 1960, very few people got type 2 diabetes. So it's clearly not a genetic thing. It's clearly not an aging thing. But all these sort of professional societies have pretended that's what it was. It was chronic. It was progressive to excuse their own sort of ignorance uh, about how to treat this disease. And the fundamental problem, of course, is that they're trying to use drugs to treat a dietary lifestyle disease. You can't do that. You need to treat the diet and the lifestyle. And that's something you've pointed out over and over again. You really need to look back at first principles, go back to the diet uh, to treat these metabolic diseases. The diet and the timing of the food, which is, of course, if you haven't guessed by now, the less solution is fasting. It is absolutely the cure for type 2 diabetes. No question about it. Now, before we dive deeper into the fasting, which, you know, this would like to spend the most of the time on that, I, I just want to to address the bariatric surgery right about in your book. And I was surprised to find that you actually thought it was an effective solution. I just thought there was no, no evidence to support it, but apparently it does work. It just works at a price like $25,000 yeah. when you can achieve this more benefits by just simply <laughs> fasting and get it for free. Oh, absolutely. I, the, the reason I say it works is that the studies are there. I haven't referred anybody for bariatric surgery. We, you know, it's just not necessary. So uh, it, there's a difference between the clinical data, which is great because there's a lot of great data from bariatric surgery because you have kind of a start point from you know when the treatment starts and, and then you can measure things very objectively. Whereas diet is always, these diet studies are always very prone to kind of different interpretations and so on. But the point being that um, you know, my main point really was that this is a reversible disease. So let's not pretend that it's irreversible and chronic because we have treatments, which I don't, I, I don't use them, but they do clearly show the reversibility of this disease. And if you, if you put that fact that we know it's reversible, yet everybody is getting worse with our current treatment. When you put those two kind of statements next to each other, then the only thing you can say is that our current treatments have to change. They're not correct. Like giving more drugs is not the answer. Um, so that, you know, that was kind of my point with bariatric surgery, just uh, you know, to, to show that it was reversible. But yeah, but I don't use it at all. I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, Cutting I, out I, healthy I, organs, it's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And then there's, of course, the, the comp Applications, a certain percentage of people will actually die from that. So, yeah. I mean, are you willing to risk your life when they say the solution is in for chronic diseases that we mentioned and the most pervasive? And I don't know if you've seen the loose statistics that were just released earlier today that that now overall in the United States, 40 percent, 40 percent, two fifths classified as obese. Wow. Two fifths. I mean, that's just not overweight. That's you know, overweight. It's like seventy percent. So interestingly, the, the, the fasting is the cure for that too. Yeah. I mean, yes, you want to eat the right types of foods, but it's this elimination, both intermittent and more importantly, the complete water fast. And when I first read your book, I thought, yes, I agreed with it. It's for diabetes. It's for obesity. But it's certainly not for me. I never had that. I you know. But now I've dug a 
dove, dove deep in the literature, and this it is it is the most magnificent, most profoundly effective metabolic intervention that I know of. Primarily because it increases your uh, it's like getting a free stem cell transplant, and it and massively upregulates autophagy. So I think it's something that everyone should do within the guidelines that you have in your in your books. Uh, but I do it myself now for five days a month because I think it's such a powerful intervention. Yeah, and in terms of mitochondrial health, which is this sort of super interesting uh, new area of research, what we see is that the, um, you know, you can get rid of these, the autophagy where you get rid of the damaged organelles. There's another process called mitophagy. But more importantly, you can also stimulate mitochondrial biosynthesis with the fasting because as you kind of uh, refeed and so on, your body kind of regenerates all these new things. You're getting the fat to fuel it. So it's not only for the type 2 diabetes and obesity, which are, of course, a, a still a major issue, but you see all these things like cancer prevention, like fascinating areas of research where, uh, you know, there's this huge link between uh, overweight, obese, type 2 diabetes, and cancer. So 40% of cancers are now classified as obesity-related cancers. And, of course, those are increasing uh, as the obesity increases. But not only that, but Alzheimer's disease, for in instance, it, there's a possibility that you can prevent or even reverse it with periods of fasting because it helps out clean out sort of the system, the old protein and the old junk that's kind of clogging up the system. So there's so many different uh, ways that the intermittent fasting uh, can help. It's, 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 it's fundamentally one of the, uh, the keys of wellness. And what I always think is in incredibly fascinating is that everybody knew it already because if you go back in history to every single religious group in the world, they all told people to fast which was at the time, of course, completely counterintuitive because food is scarce and all this sort of stuff, you know, your cavemen, you know, you go back into the 1200s and the 1400s and they're doing like 40 days of fasting for Lent or they're doing, you know, these extended fast Ramadan, a month of fasting, or, uh, you know, all these different religious groups are fasting at the same time. They actually don't even have that much food around. And why? The question is why? So these people didn't want to kill off all their parishioners they just understood that this is part of the cycle of life. You feed and you fast. And that is the way you stay healthy. It's not feeding all the time and it's not fasting all the time because obviously you die. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once in a while, it's a good thing to do a longer fast and let yourself flush out all the sort of uh, junk that's there. And then what happens, of course, is very interesting because if you look at the counter-regulatory hormones, so when insulin goes down, other hormones go up, and there's several hormones that do go up, and one of them is growth hormone. So when you fast, growth hormone goes up. And that's interesting because what happens when you're not eating is that autophagy increases, so you're breaking down all this old protein, including fast-growing cells. So if you have polycystic ovaries, polycystic kidneys, or cancer cells that are very fast-growing, they're going to turn off those growth path pathways better than anything else. But at the same time, your growth hormone kind of shoots through the roof so that when you eat again, when you refeed, you're actually building up all this new protein. So you've taken down the old stuff, 
and got the new stuff. And that's incredibly powerful because it's like a renewal cycle. So it's 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 tremendous. And it's 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 just fascinating that sort of everybody in the world knew it. They didn't know why perhaps it was so powerful, but they knew it worked. So they just said, you know what, everybody should do this. And and so they kind of prescribed fast. So you look at Greek Orthodox religion, there are days you can't eat this, days you can't eat that. Uh, and they're spread out throughout the year. Or if you go around Easter time, you know, yes, everybody should be fasting or this day everybody should be fasting or this month everybody should be fasting. Uh, you know, everybody does it a little differently, but it's, it's just incredible that this sort of uh, basic human knowledge was recognized sort of simultaneously throughout the world because everybody kind of came up with it at the same time. And for type 2 diabetes, of course, it's obvious that it works because if you don't eat, well, your blood sugar is going to go down. And if your blood sugar goes down, then you don't need to use insulin. And that's great. And as you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. It's almost inevitable. And if you lose weight, your diabetes is going to get better. Guess what? Why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? That's the real question. Well, I think one of them is what I explained in my book is that most of us are having carbohydrates as our primary source of fuel uh, and we're addicted to carbohydrates. And when you are, that you can only store carbs as a sort is glycogen for a day or two at the most maybe three i don't think anyone can store it longer than that and then you when you run out you're going to crave carbs because and then you because your body can't break down and utilize the fat stores it has as fuel so one of the things i wanted to discuss with you is is you know we got hopefully people are getting fasting therapeutically not only for true diseases which almost everyone watching this has is with 80 percent of the country being insulin resistant but for even if you're healthy there's there's nothing more profound effective as intervention than fast solid absolutely embrace your work but but so people are excited they want to start what i learned is that if you were just your normal standard american there's no way you would want to fast them they have to into this, that's what I want to talk about. And that's where I think intermittent fasting comes into play so much because if you're not eating for a certain period of the day and you do that for a while, then you build up the ability to burn fat for fuel and then you transition more readily into water fasting. And what I did for a month or so before I started Mondays, I was doing 20 hours a day intermittent fast for about a month. So I would only eat four hours a day. And when I transition to the water fast, most people, as you know, the second day, maybe the third, they'll be really hungry. But I had no hunger. Every time I've done it, I've had no hunger at all, zero. I mean, you just don't eat, and that's it. So why don't you comment on your experience clinically, because your experience dwarfs mine, with respect to what you're finding in people and helping them through the transition so they can adopt this incredibly magnificent tool. Yeah, so that's, that's a great point, because you're absolutely right. If you are... Uh, fueling yourself primarily with carbohydrates, then you can't use the fat very well. And we know this from studies of muscle biopsies, for example. So when you transition somebody from a predominantly sort of sugar, which is carbohydrates, uh, diet to a predominantly fat-based diet, well, the body can't store glycogen because those are chains of glucose. It needs to burn body fat or dietary fat. And to the body, it's sort of the same thing. They're just triglycerides. When you biopsy the muscle over a period of several weeks, what you see is that you can actually see the uh, sort of uh, machinery that is necessary to burn triglycerides for fuel 
increase. So you see the gene expression of uh, you know genes increasing that are able to use the fat. So if you go from sort of a standard 50-60% carbohydrate diet and you go to zero fat or fasting, because remember fasting, what you're doing is you're trying to eat your own body fat. Um, what happens is that your muscles are going to be weaker because they're used to glucose and they're like, where's my glucose? And it's like, nah, you know, you have triglycerides and you can't use it at first, but over a period of about two weeks or so, it gets used to it. And some people call it the keto flu and that sort of thing. So an easy transition is to switch over to sort of a very low carbohydrate, high fat diet uh, so that your body is used to using fat. So you're not fasting per se, but you're going into a high fat diet and the body gets used to burning fat for fuel. The, the other thing is you can start lengthening your period of fast. So you should be fasting every day. That's the point of that's the, the genesis of the word breakfast, break fast. So it's the meal that breaks your fast. That means you should be fasting every day, whether it's 12 hours or 14 hours. There should be a period in there that you're fasting then you can extend it. So if you want to kind of gradually go in, you can go to 16 hours, 18 hours, 20 hours, go to 24 hours, and then kind of go into it from there. So those are two ways to kind of easily transition yourself more into, to make the fasting easier. You could go from a standard diet right into fasting, but you're going to run into a few problems. We see the weakness, a little bit of the headaches, and these sort of things, sometimes cramps. And, uh, you know, there are there are issues that definitely come up, and that's where it's important to, to kind of know what to expect. And if you if you know this is going to happen, then you can kind of prepare for it and kind of get through that uh, that that period. But even shorter periods of fasting have a lot of benefits. So 24 hours, 36 hours, for example, uh, you start to get into that period where you're depleting your glycogen and you're getting into kind of fat burning. Uh, you start to see autophagy kind of start around that period of time as well, 24, 20, uh, you know, 30 hours, something like that. And it's, it's, it's a fascinating sort of thing. One of the, one of the other um, benefits people talk about nowadays is this sort of biohacking. And people, especially in Silicon Valley, are fasting uh, because it gives them sort of more mental capacity because their mm -hmm. brain uh, works, works better. And they find that they're clearer and they, they can think better. And if that's, you know, if you're trying to be the next Facebook, the next Google, hey, you need all the brain power you can get. So this is sort of a free way to boost your brain power. And it's the, wow, that's a fascinating kind of uh, thing to be doing for people. So yeah, there's all different regimens and there's all different ways to kind of ease into it. Uh, but the key is just to kind of get started. Some people will just jump in, like, you know, how people just kind of cannonball into the pool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some sure. people will just jump but you know you got to it's a good strategy but you don't want to do it wisely i mean this is a marathon this is not a sprint so you know you want to do this the rest of your life and this is a discipline i plan on integrating to the rest of my life because right? it's so valuable so um and uh, from my review of the literature yes there's benefit for a day fast or two days but it seems like the magic starts to occur at three and then anything after three is when you really uh, massively upregulated this ability to repair and regenerate your cell structure and improve your stem cell function. Oh, yeah. So that's why I do mine for five. Yeah, if you look at, there's been studies of growth hormone, for example, so up to five days of fasting, you see that it starts to go up sort of one day, you know, two days, but really it keeps mm -hmm. going up by five days. You see these like huge increases in growth hormone and so on. So it's it, absolutely right. You, you want to be breaking down those old cells, 
building up new cells and letting your you know your mitochondria sort of regenerate and so on and that's how to stay kind of healthy it's incredible well and now i'd like to capture wisdom on how to minimize the side effects from this intervention we talked about one about gradually easing into it and you know extending the uh the amount of time you're doing intermittent fasting and also increasing the percentage of fat, good fat and decreasing the carbs. But while you're fasting, uh, one of the keto flus, there's a number of experts I've uh, read and reviewed and they seem to think it's related to sodium deficiency. So what I find with it I do is I'll, I'll sprinkle uh, some Himalayan salt in my hand and like just lick it like four or five, six times a day to get my sodium level up. Because one of the debilitating side effects of this fast, it can be incapacitating muscle cramps in your legs, especially at night. Just wakes you up out of a sound sleep, and then your whole day is ruined because you didn't sleep well. Yeah. So, and I'm wondering. So I'm wondering about that, and then also during the fast, it, we it's called the water fast, which means you eat no food. But I'm wondering what your view is on other mineral supplements or even supplements like that may not be minerals, but useful mitochondrial adjuncts like coenzyme Q10 or ubiquinol and some others. Yeah, the cramps is a very, very common thing that we deal with. So I have a dietary program where we do this for people and it's, it's, an, it's called the intensive dietary management program because it's a very intensive treatment. But at the same time, what we try to do is we try and provide the support and answer questions along the way so that people don't go, wow, I had these terrible cramps and then just stop. We say, wow, this is what you can do about it. And this is part of what used to happen in normal communities where fasting is sort of part of the religion or part of the, you'd have your mom and your grandma who'd say oh you have this problem here let me take care of it of course nobody fasts anymore so nobody <laughs> knows what to tell you but the cramps is a very common one so headaches is very common when you initially start fasting and that's pretty normal and sometimes it's also due to the lack of sodium so when you go from a fairly high sodium uh, sort of a diet which most Americans are then you go to water fast which is essentially zero sodium there can be a bit of a transition there so initially you get some headaches and some people and most people those will go away after you do it a few times but they can be very tough and some people get migraines that kind of develop and again uh, making sure you get enough salt is sometimes the issue so we have people who will um, you know put salt in water and just drink that it sounds really gross but you know for those people who are salt deficient they say oh it tastes great like they love it um, you can just eat salt and then the other thing that is kind of uh, not a true fast is you can use something like a bone broth, which is easier to put salt in because if you have herbal tea, uh, it's not very tasty if you dump a bunch of salt in your you know, chamomile tea. So that's the whole uh, thing. The other, the other mineral that's very important is magnesium. And uh, magnesium deficiency is very common, particularly in type 2 diabetes. And what can happen is that uh, you get magnesium deficiency and that causes a lot of the cramps. So the problem with magnesium is that sometimes if you take the magnesium supplements, it doesn't get absorbed very well into the uh, system. So you take it and unfortunately a lot of it may come out in the stools. So there's different types of magnesium and there's a few that are a little bit better. So magnesium oxide is the standard one and it's very cheap and it's probably the most common one, but it's probably the worst one in terms of your body actually absorbing the magnesium. So the um, 
uh, you know, there's magnesium glycinate and magnesium citrate, which may be a bit better. But there's another way to do it. And again, it's a very sort of traditional way to do it. It's used Epsom salt baths. So Epsom salt is a magnesium salt. And what you do is, and sometimes they're also called dead sea salts, and you dump a couple of cups, one or two cups of this into your bath, and you soak in it for half an hour or so, and let all the magnesium absorb through your skin. So again, if you think about uh, traditional sort of remedies for cramps, Epsom salts was actually one of those, and it's a, it's a way of providing enough magnesium. Multivitamins are sometimes useful for extended fasts if you're going to do them repeatedly. Um, the other ones, the coenzyme Q10 and uh, so on, there's not, just not a lot of data for that. So I don't really have a good answer for that. I think there is a role for some of these supplements, definitely. Uh, but um, there's just not a lot of good data to suggest uh, what dose and all that sort of thing. Yeah, if I can give some personal anecdotal feedback on the magnesium, I take a relatively high dose, maybe over a gram of elemental magnesium a day. And what I notice is when you stop, that's okay when I'm eating, but when I stop, if I took, the, I did take that dose, I didn't cut back and I had really disaster pants. It was a, it was a giant mess. So if you're going to take the large amounts orally, you strongly recommend it to back off and do it transdermally like you suggest because magnesium is useful. And not only with the bathroom salts do you get magnesium, but you get sulfur too, which is really another important nutrient that most of us are deficient in. Diabetes is a leading cause of blindness, leading cause of kidney failure, leading cause of heart disease, stroke, amputations, and dementia, and infertility. <laughs> <laughs> nerve damage. I mean, it's the leading cause for most for most diseases. So why don't you expand on this and you know just discuss how we can not only prevent this but reverse many of these diseases? Absolutely. And this is one of the things that I recognize. So I'm a kidney specialist. I see people when their kidneys fail. I put them on dialysis and so on. And what is interesting is that conventional medicine is focused very much on sort of trying to treat that last little bit. So dialysis, for example, is a great treatment. It keeps people alive. But if you think about it, it's really not the cure because diabetes caused the kidney disease. So in order to prevent the kidney disease, you got to take care of the diabetes. The diabetes is caused by too much sugar and the diet. So you got to fix the diet. And then if you don't have diabetes, you won't get diabetic kidney disease. And there's the, now you, all of a sudden you have in your hand the cure for the type 2 diabetic kidney disease. Because if you don't have diabetes, you can't get the kidney disease. And that's incredible because if you have the sort of beginnings, and remember type 2 diabetes developed over a long period of time. So the kidney disease takes 10, 15, 20 years to develop. The heart disease, the blindness, they all take time. So if you can catch it early enough, you can prevent the blindness, you can prevent the amputations, you can prevent the kidney disease. But even if you do have the type 2 diabetes, we see so many cases in our intensive dietary management program where we get them off all their medications, which means their diabetes has essentially reversed. There are a few things to be aware of though. Um, if you are taking medications, uh, especially for your blood sugar, you have to make sure you talk to your doctor because there's always a risk that your blood sugar is going to go too low. So if you're taking big doses of insulin and you keep taking those big doses of insulin while you fast, you could very well get into trouble. Your sugars can go low and then that's going to be a real emergency. So you really have to talk to your doctor about that. Some people say for that reason, oh, type 2 diabetics should never fast, but that's not actually true. What's true is that you need to adjust the medication so that you anticipate that those sugars are going to go down because you could you're not your diet. 
So you could even die too if you're taking insulin if you, if it's not managed properly. I mean, there are. I think that's the only potential the cases of deaths that I'm familiar with, is those who are fasting or taking insulin. But you can you can drive your blood sugar way too low. Absolutely, and uh, if you have if you're on these medications for diabetes, you need to make sure you you monitor very closely and make sure the the blood sugars don't go too low. Because remember, the fasting is going to drive your blood sugars down, and your insulin or your medications will drive your blood sugars down. So you've got kind of two things driving your blood sugars down. All of a sudden, you go low. You can have seizures. You can uh, you know wind up in the emergency, and you could absolutely die. And that's one of the things you have to be very careful of. So yes, you can do it, but you have to make sure you do it in a sort of supervised setting with somebody who knows what they're doing and uh, you know we we fast people all the time so as doctors for example if you go for surgery you're, you can't eat if you go for a colonoscopy you can't eat for like 24 hours so it's not like nobody knows how to adjust the medication to accommodate the fasting you, you simply reduce the medication because you know that that sugar will come down and if you're worried about it then the key is to take a little less medication because you can always take more so if you're uh, taking insulin for example and you make a mistake by taking too little so your blood sugar goes up well guess what you can just take a little bit more it's no problem but if you take too much to begin with, then what's going to be a problem because your sugars will go low, then you're going to have to take sugar to bring your blood sugar up, but then you've just wasted all your time. You use the fasting to burn off the sugar, then you're forced to put sugar into your body. But again, the point is to use the diet to replace some of the medication. So if you don't replace that medication and you take it, you're getting that, you're getting into a lot of, uh, you can potentially get into a lot of trouble. And that's where you have to be sometimes a little bit careful. But when we monitor people closely and do it safely, we monitor their blood work, monitor their medications, have them check their blood sugars. We, we reverse diabetes in a, you know, in a large proportion of cases, it's, it's really gratifying to see because I know that I'll be able to prevent them from getting all those problems down the line which are all the problems that cause so much heartache, all the strokes, all the heart attacks, all the blindness, all the dialysis. I, I, you know, I, when I put people on dialysis from diabetic kidney disease, I always feel a little bit bad because I'm like, if people had the right information, they could have reversed their own diabetes before it even got to this stage. We could have prevented all this, and that's why it's important to get this message out that no, type 2 diabetes is not chronic and progressive. It's not a part of aging and life. It's a disease, and you need to treat it as a serious disease, and take take uh, you know take the necessary steps. Yeah, and, and even worse than dialysis is a transplant, because once you have a transplant, then you're on these immunosuppressive drugs, which will definitely radically increase your risk for cancer. But I just wanted to, you to address this issue that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with a low blood sugar, and and in fact, many I've gone personally gone down to 40 with no symptoms at all. I know people have gone into the 20s and 30s. So if you're already fat adapted, your body's creating alternative fuel sources in the form of ketones, it's not an issue. But if you're not, and it goes down that low, then you have a problem, especially if you're taking medications or insulin. Yeah. I mean, for sure, the, um, when, you, when you measure people who are kind of fat adapted, kind of on this ketogenic diet, they're producing ketones. So their brain is mostly using ketones for energy. So your brain is the most important organ um, that really has to use either ketones or glucose. It can't use fat directly, that is triglycerides. So your fat cells, they liberate the triglycerides and your muscles, your liver, your, you know, most of your, the cells in your body will use it. But that, the, the fat, the triglycerides can't get through the blood-brain barrier. So instead the body changes it into a ketone body and sends it through. Because your brain is not using as much glucose, 
your blood glucose could go down and you could feel fine. There, there were some fascinating studies from sort of the 70s or something where they actually took people, they, they fasted them so that their ketones went up and their blood glucose uh, was relatively low. And then they gave them like a big whack of insulin, like, you know, complete <laughs> malpractice. You'd never be able to do that study now drove their blood glucose way down. I think it got down close to like 18 or 20. And these people were like, fine, they're just walking around because their brain is using the ketone. So it's not absolutely necessary. Now, I mean, that's a little extreme and that's really very dangerous. But at the same time, it just goes to show you your point that is you can tolerate lower blood glucose. In fact, that's what's supposed to happen when you're not eating is that your blood glucose is supposed to drop down as you switch over to using fat and using ketones as your primary fuel source. Okay, so you have extensive experience in managing people with these chronic degenerative diseases, primarily kidney, but certainly the others. So I'm wondering if you could provide a picture and a, a description of the range of results to anticipate with respect to the timing. So someone who comes in who's your typical either overweight or obese individual with uh, diabetes and secondary kidney disease or heart disease, what type of time frame are they looking at for improvement in your, your uh, experience and what type of strategy do you recommend with respect to implementing fasting? How frequently are you doing it? Is it once every once a month, once every two weeks? Yeah, that's a good question, and everybody's quite different. So we'll see results uh, that are, you know, some people will get better very quickly and other people won't. So it generally depends on how long you've had the type 2 diabetes for and how severe it was. So obviously people who are uh, on many, many units of insulin a day, they're going to take a little bit longer. So we typically um, use more intensive sort of fasting strategies. We do sort of individualize it a little bit. So that uh, we, we, we kind of take into account, for example, their age. If they're, you know, 75, we're not going to use a super intensive strategy like 14 days of fasting. We're going to take it a little easier. On the other hand, if you have like a, you know, a young 40-year-old who's very motivated and wants to do it, then yeah, maybe that's, a, that's appropriate. In general, we start to see results right away, but some people have a longer you know, road to travel than others. Um, so we'll often use sort of 24 to 36 hours of fasting, sort of intermittent fasting uh, twice a week or three times a week as sort of a, you know, a baseline. That's one of our kind of lower intensity ones. And then as people get used to it, then you know, individualize it and try to increase it in terms of maybe extend the fasting, do longer periods of fasting. Uh, for people who are on lots of insulin, like uh, over 50 units of insulin a day, um, and they're relatively young and healthy and motivated and can do it safely, we'll often recommend an extended fast sort of very early to try and sort of wean them off of this sort of glucose dependency, let their body really burn it, burn down that sugar. Because there's, uh, there's data to suggest that if you can put people on a very low calorie diet for about two weeks or so, you can actually get rid of a lot of the fatty liver. That's the real issue uh, in, term, in, in the type 2 diabetes. So you can get good results very quickly. Um, so that's the kind of time frame. So start, things will start happening almost right away. People notice it almost right away. But 
if they want more results, we'll, we'll ramp it up. If they are okay to kind of do it slowly, um, but usually over a period of months, it, it sort of reflects how long they've had it. If you've had it for 10 years, it's not going to go away in two months. It's going to take a year, year okay. and a half, two years. But I believe in the book you discussed the difference between a very low-calorie diet and fasting. They are, they, although they seem similar, they're really quite two different approaches. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that because, you know, there's a lot of confusion in this area. Yeah, and some people uh, think it's all about calorie restriction, but really the calories is not the real issue. The real issue is forcing your insulin. So insulin is sort of a um, hormone that tells our body that food is coming in. It's a nutrient sensor, so it senses that food is coming in, and therefore we should store fat because that's a storage form of food energy. If insulin is high, then what happens is that your body thinks food is coming in, it starts to store energy, and it's not gonna burn the fat. It's not gonna burn the kind of glycogen and all that sort of stuff, it's instead gonna store it. So your body really exists in sort of one of two states. It's either in the fed state, which is storing fat, or the fasted state where it's burning fat. So if you, kind of eat all the time but a little bit and keep your insulin high but take very few calories it's not going to matter because your body still wants to store fat because you're kicking it out of the sort of fat burning stage as soon as it gets there by taking you know a little bit all the time so it's really about getting your insulin down allowing your body to use those fat stores so that as you start to pull out the fat and the key to type 2 diabetes is really all the fat in around the organs the fat in the liver the fat in the pancreas that's what really causes the type 2 diabetes as you get rid of that sort of visceral fat, that's when you can uh, see the insulin resistance come down. You can see the, the uh, type 2 diabetes come down, the blood glucose comes down. And the good news is that it can happen relatively uh, quickly. Very, you know, low calorie diets don't do the same thing because, you know, calories is not the measure. Different foods, for even for the same calories have completely different insulin effects. So if you eat refined carbohydrates, it's gonna have a very high insulin effect compared to dietary fat. For example, if you eat an avocado, the insulin effect for the same amount of calories is minuscule compared to eating like crackers or something like that. So it's really the insulin effect and not the, um, not the sort of, um, calories that's the real issue so you have to we have to kind of get away from thinking about calories because that's not a physiologic measure our body doesn't measure calories our body doesn't know anything about calories it's just something um artificial it's a, it's a concept from physics because uh we think that physics is uh, you know it's so much more precise but the body just doesn't work like that the body responds to hormones and insulin is the key so fasting is about lowering insulin calorie restriction is just some sort of Sometimes it works if you get the insulin down, and sometimes it doesn't work if you're just eating all this sure. carbohydrates. Well, now I'd like to address the elephant in the room, which pretty much universally everyone I've uh, approached this concept of fasting with, uh, the experience and their almost immediate reaction is fear. One word, fear. <laughs> they're afraid they're going to go into starvation mode, they're going to run into problems, but it's just this enormous cloud of fear that surrounds the issue of fasting. And I'm sure that's been your experience up there. You know, and part of it is like people think they're going to lose all their lean muscle mass and, you know, and it, people even go to the point where they're taking protein supplements during the fast, like branched chain amino acids. And, you know, you, exp you explain really clearly how there's this massive protein spray effect. So why don't you talk about starvation mode, fear, 
and loss of lean muscle mass. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the um, issue of uh, starvation mode is one that people think that when you fast, your metabolic rate. So the metabolic rate is the energy that you use to um, generate body heat, to keep your liver working, to keep your brain working. It's a certain number of calories a day. It's not exercise because if you lie in bed all day, you still need a certain number of calories of energy to be burned so that you can survive. Um, and people think that if you skip a meal or if you uh, do some fasting, that metabolic rate is going to go down. In fact, it's the exact opposite. So if you study people over, say, four days of fasting and measure their basal metabolic rate at the end of the fast and compared to the beginning, at the end of the four days of fasting, it's actually 10% higher than it was at the beginning. So the body is not shutting down. It's actually ramping itself up. And the reason is physiology. So there's these counter-regulatory hormones. As insulin drops, counter-regulatory hormones go up. And some of these counter-regulatory hormones are the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is so, the so-called fight-or-flight response. So it kind of pumps your body full of energy through, this, through the nerves. Uh, noradrenaline, so again, adrenaline is pumping your body up. And then growth hormone is the third kind of major um, counter-regulatory hormone. So as you fast, all of these hormones are going up. Your sympathetic nervous system is going up. Your adrenaline is going up. Your growth hormone is going up. So obviously, if you're pumping your body full of adrenaline, your basal metabolic rate is not going down. In fact, it maintains itself, which is in you know distinction to calorie restriction diets, where in fact, if you just try and cut a few calories a day, your uh, metabolic rate will go down. And the growth hormone is important because of this sort of protein sparing effect that yes, there are proteins that go over this sort of normal turnover. When you study people fasting, you don't see an increase in burning of protein, but there is a sort of normal turnover. Uh, but at the end of it, when your, because your growth hormone is so high, when you eat again, you will make up these new proteins. So it's actually much healthier for you because you're getting rid of old protein and you're bringing new protein. So when you look at studies of alternate daily fasting, for example, when they compare, and there's been several studies that have done that, they compare the calorie restriction um, to alternate daily fasting. So they've tried to look at the kind of body composition difference when you do one strategy versus the other. What's interesting is that if you look at truncal fat, which is the fat around the abdomen, which is really the dangerous fat, I mean, that's the most dangerous fat, the fasting group did much better, like six times better. If you look at lean body mass as a percentage, so it goes up a little bit as you lose weight. So the calorie restriction went up by 0.5%. The, uh, the fasting group went up by 2.2% because fat, the, the, the lean mass is a higher percentage if you lose fat. But in other words, when you do the fasting, you're preserving lean mass at a rate like four times better than simple calorie restriction. So these were all just kind of somebody thought it sounded right, so they put it out there and then everybody believed it because nobody really wanted to fast anyway or it's been out of vogue and there's been a lot of reasons why. But, uh, you know, these sort of myths are actually not true. In fact, what's, what's ironic is that it's the exact opposite. People say, oh, you're going to lose muscle, you're going to lose muscle mass. It's not just muscle but all protein. In fact, it does better with fasting. They're gonna, they say, oh, you're going to go into starvation mode. It's the exact opposite. It actually goes up. So that's the sort of thing. There's actually no reason why you can't fact, uh, fast. In fact, that's what body fat is, is there for. It's not there for looks. It's there <laughs> for you to use. <laughs>
as a store of, yeah. of energy. So let your body use it because that's the energy, yeah. that's the fat that's making you sick. It's great. Yes. And, uh, you know, I just want to emphasize the point you made about recycling the protein, because if you look at some of the, the literature, it's really, this is one of the aging, aging or these senescent cells or these proteins that are damaged that your body has lost or relatively massively decreased its capacity to remove effectively. And they just hang around causing problems. They're not working. They're just clogging up the system. And when you fast, you, you send that signal. You just like turn the switch on and you remove it and you burn those for fuel and you create new ones, which yeah. is just such a delight. I mean, it's like, it's like the really the hidden fountain of youth that most people are just don't get forgotten. So as, I, as I'm convinced, as I said before, it's the most powerful metabolic intervention I've ever known in, in all of the years I've been studying medicine. And I'm just that I didn't appreciate it until really actually this year. I thought it wasn't for me. I had the fear that I was going to lose lean muscle mass. I didn't get it. Even though you started last year, now I get it. And hopefully those of you out there listening to the second or third or fourth time will get it and start doing this to reap the benefits. Because we're not selling you anything. You're going to, you save money. <laughs> you're not buying food. You're not preparing it. You're not cleaning it. You're not eating it. You save money, you save time, and you, improve your mental clarity and there's no hunger by the way so it, you have done a, an absolutely terrific magnificent job in in the complete guide to fasting if you are watching this and you have diabetes there's no question but i'm sure with 50 percent of the population having diabetes or pre-diabetes there's someone you know who has this you need to get this book the diabetic code it's a great book and I mean, it's, you know, books are one of the best values you can get out there for like $15, $20. You get literally something that took Jason over a thousand hours to write and literally his, and thousands and thousands of his clinical year hours of clinical patient experience to put together, compile, and then give it to you for that. I mean, what much be how much better of a bargain could you want? It's, it's really good. And then to get your other book too, The Complete Guide to Fasting. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely, and it's like it's it's knowledge that uh, you know it, it's only knowledge that we need. That's what's so powerful about books, because we can change the world. You can change your life with nothing more than knowledge. The knowledge that you get in a book, the knowledge that you get in a podcast, the knowledge that you get from reading your newsletter. It's it's so incredible because it's not like we need surgeons and we need uh, nor more technology. <laughs> or <and> drugs. <laughs> or drugs, absolutely. More, drugs. more insulin, more insulin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just the knowledge, the knowledge that we had a thousand years ago. It's, it's, it's a fascinating sort of area. And I had the same reaction. Uh, when I started using this about four or five years ago, um, in fact, so I was thinking about fasting. Somebody is telling me, and I thought, wow, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, why? Why is this so silly? So then I dug into the research, and then I just started doing it. So I have probably have more clinical experience, truthfully, than anybody in the world. And that's not hard because nobody was doing it, uh, you know, yeah. a few years ago. And now that's it's like uh, it seems so obvious that, that the solution, like all great sort of uh, answers, seems so obvious once you hear it it's like wow of course don't eat and your blood sugars come down lose weight and your diabetes gets better oh there's there's the solution right there why can't we do it and you know that's 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 all we need is knowledge and that's so powerful
Yeah, there, there are, you're one of the only uh, clinicians who are doing this, but there are some clinics out there like True North and Hippocrates that, that regularly walk people through this and, you know, get stupendous results. And, you know, Hippocrates is a little bit different. They do, they do a juice fast, which is not a true fast, which is what uh, water fasting that True North does. But uh, nevertheless, I mean, they've got thousands and thousands of success stories oh, and just like you do. So yeah, I want to... Sorry, I was just saying, yeah, absolutely. What what I did was apply it to a clinical setting. That is, okay. you know, right. rather than having people come in with their, uh, you know, for a week or whatever. I mean, they come in, I see them for 10 or 15 minutes, yeah, and then they're out. The next one is in, and, you know, it's, it, we kind of keep going. So, I mean, it's, an out, it's an outpatient program, essentially. They're still living at home. So, mm -hmm. it's a completely different scenario. But you have been an absolute major pioneer pioneer in this area has certainly been a, a radical influence in my own life personally and I can't thank you enough for doing that now that I've embraced and do the water fasting regularly it's, it's just it's really the probably my most important biohack bar none if I was to only have one it would be fasting no question I mean obviously eating the right food but uh, fasting is key so uh, you you deserve a, an enormous debt of gratitude from not only me but for all those who are helping with this information and just if you haven't picked up this book it's time to pick up the book and read it for yourself or give it to someone you love or care about because almost odds are they're going to need it and you know it's 50 percent of people are diabetic pre-diabetic but we know from Kraft's work on hyperinsulinemia that it's probably 80 percent of the people in this country are insulin resistant and anyone who's insulin resistant needs to fast for the most part i mean there's a few exceptions to that and you outlined them in your book like pregnant women or you know yeah, yeah. other other situations but you know they're pretty few and far between yeah. so uh all right any any closing words of wisdom i think that's the uh you know i think we've we've said it all but uh, i think this is absolutely one of the most important biohacks out there it's not really even a biohack it's just something that used to be part of our human <laughs> tradition and it's like it was part of being a human being was this sort of fasting feeding, you know, uh, thing. And we've lost that to our detriment, but there's nothing to stop us from kind of regaining that kind of ancestral health that we used to have, you know, free of obesity, free of type two diabetes, all this sort of thing. Um, you know, all these problems that we didn't have in the 1950s, hey, we can go back there, no problem. And it's not gonna cost us anything. As a society, it's not gonna cost us anything. Personally, it's not going to cost us anything. Uh, that's the you know we can we can get there. We just need you know we need to spread the message and let people know the truth. Yeah, and not only does it not cost anything, it's actually less expensive than that because you're saving money. <laughs> and as long as you can get over that fear and listen to what what we discussed earlier about the fear, because it is real, and I'm sure that's what's holding most people back is the fear. So acknowledge it, embrace it. It's it's okay to be afraid, but you know, just embrace it with knowledge and understanding and walk your way through it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for your great work. It's uh, incredibly appreciated. Thank you very much, Joe.